Father in heaven, thank you again for this opportunity and for this venue and for this blessing of so many willing hearts to know your will. Uh, Father, we pray that you'll abide with us, that your Holy Spirit will attend us, and though I know I will be covering some things that may be elusive in the minds of some here, uh, please uh, uh, give them uh, your, your presence uh, to, to give them confidence that uh, this is something that they too can, can comprehend, understand, and implement. Abide with us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'm going to talk about uh, some stuff here that gets a little bit complicated, but again, I don't want you to panic. And I'm going to point out more the principles of what we're doing, and I'm going to show you some steps to follow, but don't feel like you've lost it if you're not following me on the steps, because the presentation is on our website, and this is something that actually it takes about a day and a half to convey uh, just with what I'm going to share with you before lunch this morning. So uh, you're getting an overview of it. I'm exposing you to it. I'm sharing some principles with you. But don't panic if at the end of this session you're going, what in the world is he talking about? Uh, so uh, the, the, the concepts that I want to convey here, though, are extremely important. And the most valuable concepts that I have learned in terms of soil chemistry and soil fertility in my career in agriculture. And everywhere I have applied these, they meet that test of science. It works 100% of the time. And this has been applied in everything from container growing for large nurseries. Uh, uh, I've, I've applied this on a, a nursery scale of up to 2,400 acres of a crop that had a, a market value of $2 million an acre. Uh, this is very important stuff. Um, and uh, again, for those of you that may not have been here this morning, uh, we are instructed uh, to advance our understanding of agriculture by science. And our science comes from the word of God, from the spirit of prophecy, and from proven, tested, scientific method, which means that we replicate trials over and over again. When we get the same results, every time we can establish a scientific law. And unless that takes place, anything else we discuss is anecdotal information. And the vast majority of information in agriculture today that you read about in books at the gardening centers, that your neighbors share with you over the fence, that's anecdotal information. The first time you take a single step in your garden and you get a result from that, if you're sharing that result, you're violating scientific principle. Because the reality is that unless you replicate something for four years in seven different locations and seven different trials in each of those locations and you get the same results after four years in all of those trials in all of those locations, then you've established cause to effect. If you haven't done that, if you've gone out and you've used, you know, grandma's garlic and cayenne elixir to keep the potato bugs off your potato plants and you do it one time and you don't see potato bugs or you see fewer than the year before and you share that information, you're not sharing something that's scientifically valid and it may or may not be appropriate. And in every situation, whatever we do to our crops has just as much potential to damage our crops as it does to do something good for them. When we start talking about uh, pest control uh, a, a little later on, uh, this week when we discuss methods for dealing with, with, with pests. We've got to realize that anything, anything we apply to our plants, any spray we apply to our, our plants has side effects. 
just like any medications or any treatments that we, that we do on ourselves. These things are powerful and they have side effects. So use scientific principle. That's really a very, very important uh, perspective to maintain. <clears throat> and again, what we're going to talk about this morning is this first step of building a soil bank. And the primary principle behind what we're doing here is to develop an environment in the soil. We're going to talk about plant nutrients as we do this, but we're not talking about these elements in their role as plant nutrients. We're talking about building an environment in the soil that is conducive to biological activity. That's an important point to understand. Even though these same elements are also nutrients that plants need, we are talking about them in a different role, and that is to build a nice house, a nice structure, a nice living environment for the bacteria, the fungi, the enzymes, the algae, all of the other constituents of the biology in the soil. And again, I'm just going to skip through these because we talked about our soil this morning. Now, when we talk about soil, we better have a definition for what we're talking about because not all of us say that word soil and mean the same thing sometimes. And not all of us know what we're referring to when we're talking about soil. Soil is basically a combination of ingredients. About 50% of those ingredients are minerals. And these minerals can vary widely. There are 114 different elements today on the periodic table of elements. Those are all the building blocks for all of nature. And the minerals in our soils can contain a wide variety of those various different elements on the periodic table. So simply knowing that we have 50% minerals doesn't really tell us much about the chemical nature of the soil. But 50% of the soil is mineral. Air makes up 23 to 25% of the soil. This is a really important thing to understand because air is as important to the health of plants in the root zone as water is. Plants that are deprived of air in the root zone will not flourish. They will not perform well. And it's important to recognize this. And this is where our, sometimes our methods of irrigation become very important because there's actually ways of getting more into the air into the soil by applying water, for example. And we'll get into that a little bit later on. Water makes up 23 to 25% of the soil surface, and it is an important constituent too, obviously, because water not only serves to keep the plants hydrated, but it's the vehicle by which minerals enter the plant. They're taken up through the roots in soluble form uh, in, in the water. And organic matter in most soils constitutes about 3 to 5 percent. And again, the organic matter is anything that is living or was living, right? In understanding soils, and we've probably got people here from, from all over the country uh, this week, uh, in our part of the planet here in the southeastern United States, most of our soils fall into this first category, acid soils. In fact, about 70% of all the arable land on planet Earth is an acid soil. Um, and acid soils have a pH below 7. They have free hydrogen 
in something called the base saturation. We'll get to a definition of that shortly here. And the vast majority of our planet's soils, especially in moist climates, are acid soils. The second category of soils that are used for agriculture are called calcareous soils. And these have typically a slightly alkaline pH. These can be anywhere from about 6.5 to, uh, to about 8.3. They can run a little lower than the 7.1 I have written here. Uh, but they're called calcareous soils because they contain lots of calcium and oftentimes magnesium carbonates. They're often high in phosphates, and these are uh, around the planet the most fertile soils that we grow our crops on, are calcareous soils. An example of calcareous soil is where I grew up in the Sacramento Valley of Northern California and the San Joaquin Valley of California, uh, the Willamette Valley of Oregon, and some, some of the western soils are, and also in parts of Arizona, there are calcareous soils. Um, the third uh, soil classification I'm going to list for you here are what are called sodic soils, and these are soils that are very highly alkaline usually a pH well above 8. They have lots of free sodium in the base saturation, and they're very poorly drained, and they have very poor water penetration. And these are typically desert soils, uh, soils that you would find out in, find out in the areas of, of western New Mexico, Arizona, southern California deserts, uh, those types of areas. And these soils can be also be very productive, but they, they have to be managed appropriately. And the, uh, uh, the, the important point for you to understand here is that you've got to know what type of soil you have to start with before you even start doing a soil analysis. Because these three different types of soil actually have um, such different characteristics that one soil analysis size doesn't necessarily fit all. And you need to understand what type of soil that you've got. Now, if you don't know whether, which of these classifications you fall into, my suggestion would be to talk to your local extension agent and ask him, do we have acid soils, calcareous soils, or sodic soils? Just all you, all you want from him is the answer to one of those you know, the answer to that one question, uh, but uh, until you know the answer to that, uh, you're not really going to know how to best analyze your soil. In analyzing your soils, I strongly recommend that you use a privately run soil laboratory. Uh, many of our state university systems have, uh, have soil labs, and they'll often uh, analyze your soil for free. And... Uh, if not for free, for a very nominal uh, fee. And I would ask that, uh, uh, sir, that light is really distracting to me. I'm, I'm sorry, but can uh, the, the light's very bright. <clears throat> um, I, the reason that I recommend a privately run laboratory is because many of the state laboratories are geared towards mainstream monoculture agriculture. They're interested in analyzing how much nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium you have in that soil so that you won't inhibit the potential for yield, okay? That's great if you're a commercial farmer and you just want to grow tons of stuff per acre. But it doesn't work very well if you want to grow crops over a long period of time on the same soil and you want to actually get nourishment from those crops. 
So the paradigm that we're going to use in going through what I'm going to explain about a soil analysis here is very, very different than what the agronomist at the soil laboratory uses, than what the extension agent is going to think when you tell him uh, uh, what your plans are to do with your soil. And, you know, it, it, it's a unique perspective. We're using a different paradigm of making use of the information from a soil analysis. So, so it's important to, to, to know uh, a lot of the detail about that soil that the land-grant universities simply don't provide. So I'll, I'll give you some suggestions for labs here too. At the, end of the, at the bottom of this slide, you'll see a few of them. Um, be certain that your soil analysis includes something called the base saturation. Uh, minerals are reported on a soil analysis, sometimes in parts per million, sometimes in pounds per acre. But what we're really interested, first and foremost, is something called the base saturation. And not all soils uh, analysis uh, have that on their reports. That's another reason why I prefer to use a soil lab. The other thing to recognize is there are different extraction methods on that soil sample to determine how much of each element is in the soil. And this is where knowing what soil classification you have becomes important because we use a different extraction method for a sodic soil than we do for an acid soil. Yes. And the extraction method is basically dissolving the minerals and then running them through a flame spectrometer to determine the amount of mineral that's in the soil. And for an acid soil, I like to use what's called the Mellick 3 method. Now, in container growing, if I'm growing, and, and part of the reason that the extraction method becomes important is because <clears throat> um, we have this concept that when we, when we dissolve a rock and then take a, a measurement of the minerals, the mineral content of that rock, that, that that's a fixed picture. And that's really not the case in, in, in terms of, of analyzing a, a soil sample because what most soil laboratories are looking for is the amount of that mineral that is eventually going to become available to a plant. So if I've got a large um, a piece of, of a granitic type of very, very hard uh, sand particle, for example, and I run that through any one of these extraction methods, it's going to strip some of that, uh, that potential nutrient for the plant off of it, but you're not going to get the picture of the whole total quantity that's there, okay? And because of that, uh, if we're going to be analyzing a, an acid soil, I suggest that you use a Mellick 3 analysis. Mellick 3, that's the one I have underlined here. Now, for calcareous soils, a Bray analysis is more effective, or an ammonium acetate analysis. And then if you're using uh, an, uh, looking for an analysis on a sodic soil or a desert soil or a high salt soil, the Olson analysis is the one that you're going to want. Now, let me just take a minute. Some of you I know are, are very interested in, in, in what Brother Whitmar McConnell is teaching, too. And, and um, you know, Whitmar is taking a lot of what I'm going to be sharing with you today and really digging much, much more deeply into it. And uh, he has some excellent information over there. You need, to, you need to get the foundation before you go over there to understand what he's saying. But Whitmar prefers these types of analysis, even on an acid soil, 
because his perspective is to nourish the plants and he wants to know what's there and what's available for the plants on a constant basis. And I'm explaining this because I have a slightly different philosophy on my use of a soil analysis and that is that I know that in the near future we're approaching a time where we're not going to be able to buy or sell. This is a perspective that we at Seventh-day Adventists have that is unique and we need to apply that in the methods that we utilize for managing our farms and managing our soils because you know Whitmar's information is excellent accurate information but if you're going to follow that process that means a, a, a spoon feeding or a steady serving of some elements over over time in order to achieve that now that's all well and fine and you grow wonderful stuff that way don't misunderstand me I'm not knocking it what I'm saying, though, is that my perspective is that I want to achieve a point on my farm where I can produce crops for an extended period of time, up to a decade, without any inputs at all. And that's the difference between, part of the difference between what he's sharing over there and what we're sharing here, okay? So if you are interested in what he has to share I'm saying study it by all means but recognize that we have that slight difference of perspective and that'll help you understand a little bit some of the differences in the way we go about instructing you to do things so we're not you know we're we're we're, we're of one accord in terms of what we're what we're doing it's just that what he's doing and what I'm doing are not the same thing okay If I was to have a high inventory of those amendments, would it store well? In most cases, no. Uh, especially in terms of, of some of the nitrogen uh, compounds. Many of them are, uh, most of these materials that we're going to be talking about are salts, and they're hygroscopic. They pull moisture out of the atmosphere, and they turn into bricks in fairly short order, so they don't keep well. Uh, to my way of thinking, uh, my personal perspective is that I want the soil to be enriched to a point where it can sustain me for a long period of time without any additional inputs, okay? Now his process, you know, in, in terms of building our soil bank, his process gets you, to the, gets you to, the, to the balance in your account, just as mine does. But the difference is in the subtleties, because in, the, in, in my situation, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna be able to sustain that growth for a longer period of time. I'm sorry, I told everybody to turn off their phones and I left mine on so I could see what time it was. All right, so anyway, for most of us, how many of you uh, in this area are from east of the Mississippi? How many from west of the Mississippi? Okay, we, wow, what a spread of people. You folks have traveled a ways. That's awesome. Okay, well, that becomes a little more pertinent then because some of you that are out west will, uh, will face issues with, with calcareous and perhaps even sodic soils. Uh, I'm going to address primarily the acid soil. I'll cover those uh, this morning too, but we're going to talk about acid soils primarily this morning. And again, uh, I use a laboratory in Richmond, Virginia called A&L Eastern Laboratories. And I uh, am not opposed if you want to use another laboratory provided that it, that it has the same, uh, uh, you know, the same protocols of, of analyzing for base saturation and that you know which analytical method they use. That's the important part here. Uh, 
No, I, I strongly discourage analyzing in my place. I send my samples to ANL laboratories. Actually, they've just changed their name. They're called Waypoint Analytical now. But I send my samples out. I do not an analyze on site. Many of the minerals that we're looking at, we're analyzing for in parts per million. I mean, at like one or two parts per million. And there is not a single soil kit out there I have ever seen that is anywhere near accurate enough to meet the needs of, of scientifically approaching your, your, your soil. Most of them are very crude. In fact, I've never, I, I don't know of a single commercial grower that I've worked with over the course of my career that would ever rely on a, on a, on a simple soil test kit. Basically, they're like the idiot lights on your dashboard compared to a gauge. You know, if you have low oil pressure, uh, the light comes on, you know your oil pressure is low, you don't know what it is, but you know it's low. Uh, whereas if you have an oil pressure gauge, you know exactly the amount of oil pressure that's there. And that's the difference between a home soil test kit and, and a laboratory test. So I strongly suggest you send it to a lab. Now, the test that I, that I have run on my samples only cost $15. This is not a big investment. Someone was asking me this morning, he says, well, I have, you know, I've got like, you know, seven, eight different garden beds, uh, and they're all probably different. Should I sample them all? And I said, by all means, sample them all. It's not that big an investment. In fact, it's the best investment that you can make in your garden. It's the, 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 the amount of information, the return for your investment for the cost of a soil analysis is better than any other investment you're going to make in your garden. I mean, for most of us, that's, you know, that's three packages of seeds or, you know, less than half the price of a good quality hoe. So it's certainly an appropriate investment to make. So don't be shy about doing that. Part of what that soil analysis is going to tell us is the pH of the soil. pH stands for potential of hydrogen, and the pH scale runs from 0 to 14, with 7 being neutral. Most of you know this. This is kind of a little high school chemistry review here. If the number is above 7, it indicates an alkaline soil. If it's below 7, it indicates an acid soil. And what we're actually measuring here in the soil are ions. When we do a pH test of the soil, we're measuring positively charged hydrogen ions or negatively charged hydroxyl ions. And it depends on the, the, the amount of the concentration of those ions tells us what the pH is. And we have ways of adjusting that pH. If we have an acid soil, typically we add limestone to the soil. And if we have a very highly alkaline soil, we'll add sulfur to the soil to lower the pH. And part of the reason that that pH is important is because it has a bearing on the availability, the solubility, of other elements that are in the soil. And the, for, for most of our gardening purposes, uh, our soils should be in a, a pH range between six and a half and seven. That's a good range for the availability of all of these other mineral elements that plants need. Now the way to look at this chart is that as we get over to this end, we become more and more acidic, this is more and more alkaline. Each of these represents a given amount of that nutrient, but as you can see, in iron, for example, as the soil becomes more alkaline, iron becomes less and less available. This is one of the reasons that for blueberries, for example, they recommend a low pH, usually. They want to see you growing blueberries in an acid soil. It's because blueberries require lots of iron. 
and at a low pH you have the maximum availability of iron in the soil. If you have a soil that is very, very high in iron, you can grow blueberries perfectly well in a neutral pH. My blueberries are growing on soil where the pH is about 6.8, and they're doing fabulously. But I have lots and lots of iron in my soil, native iron in my soil. So this is part of the reason that the pH is important here. And again, just for a quick review, we've got 17 essential plant nutrients that plants require. What do we mean by essential nutrients? We mean nutrients that the plant cannot live without. If we subtract any one of these elements from the soil, the plant will die. It simply will not survive. That's what we mean by essential nutrients. The first three of these come from the environment, typically, carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. The next three, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, are considered primary nutrients, usually. And that doesn't mean they're any more important than the other ones. It simply means that the plant uses those in large quantities. The secondary nutrients are calcium, magnesium, and sulfur, and then trace nutrients or micronutrients are boron, copper, iron, zinc, molybdenum, manganese, chlorine, and nickel. Without those elements, plants don't grow. But, as I was saying earlier today, we need an additional 16 elements in our food if we're going to be healthy. And my question for you is, where are those coming from? And if you're relying on the organic food from Whole Foods, if you're relying on most of the produce that those of us grow in our gardens, on depleted soils that we talked about earlier this morning, we're not getting them, folks. We're simply not getting them. And that presents a health problem, I think. A lot of what both Whitmore and, and I uh, understand about soils uh, has to do with making study of the work of this man. This is a man named William Albrecht, who back in the 1940s was chairman of the soils department at the University of Missouri. William Albrecht had a very interesting perspective. And his perspective was that, well, whatever the chemistry of the soil is, has a bearing on the chemistry and the fodder that's being grown on that soil, and has a bearing on the chemistry of the cattle that eventually eat that fodder. So if I start studying the health of animals and correlate that to what I see in soil chemistry, I can start to understand how best to manage soils for animal and human health. He, he, he was, that was a huge breakthrough. People, you know, we, we look at that and we say, well, gee, that's just common sense today. That makes perfect sense, but it's, unusual because no one else in the science had really looked at it that way before. To correlate what was going on in the chemistry of the soil with human health was his huge contribution to soil science. And he came up with some characteristics of soils where healthy crops were grown and healthy animals uh, were able to consume those healthy crops and flourished. He made a statement in 1942 that's at the bottom of the slide here, and for those of you that can't see, I'll read it, because this is, to me, quite telling. NPK formulas, that's nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, as legislated and enforced by state departments of agriculture, mean malnutrition, attack by insects, bacteria and fungi, weed takeover, crop loss in dry weather, and general loss of mental acuity in the population, leading to degenerative metabolic disease and early death. Do we see any of that? 
Did we see any evidence of that earlier this morning when we looked at the nutritional value of those foods and how they plummeted? So to my way of thinking, this, this man, I don't have too many heroes, but he's, he's one of my heroes for, for really standing against, the, against his peers and in, in developing uh, his, the understandings that he had. And even to this day, his work is, is very widely marginalized because when the grocer sells you food, he's not selling you health, he's selling you stuff by the pound. When the wholesaler sells to the grocer, sells product to that grocery store, they're not selling you nutrition, they're selling you stuff by the pound. And that, unfortunately, is the way it still exists today. And I've got to tell you, folks, even those of you that are, that are committed to, to, to buying organic produce today, if you're making the assumption that it's more nutritious, you're making a, a, really, a really bad mistake. Because, frankly, there are just as many bad organic growers out there as there are uh, bad conventional growers, and there's not necessarily any more nutrition in that organic produce. And this, again, is because of that array of 17 elements that we know how to target for the plant to make the plant look good. But whether that provides us with our nutrition, we're flying blind on. Unless we are taking the steps to address the soil, to grow this stuff ourselves, to produce it in our own gardens, as I believe all of us should, then we do not have that certainty of knowing whether that food is good for us or not. Did you have a quick comment? Yes. Isn't that the biblical principle here? Where did the Lord put Adam? What was his industry? It was agriculture. If that was true for Adam, is it any less true for us today? I'm glad you asked that question because I'm a very strong advocate of our need to study that book of nature in balance with our study of scripture. And I honestly believe that we need devotional time in the garden every day just as we do devotional time in God's word every day or we're not me measuring up. So that is what we're called to do. And I'm so thrilled to see such a turnout at this meeting because people are finally becoming aware that this isn't something that we just talk about or isn't just a piece of head knowledge that we understand because it's actually the experience of agriculture that provides us with value. It's not knowing about it. It's not studying it. It's not preparing for that time of trouble when we're going to have to all grow our own beets and just knowing that you got the DVD on the shelf so you can pull it out when you need it. That's not what it's about. It's about doing this. It's about the lifestyle. It's about the character development. It's about the challenges. It's about learning how to rely on God. So this is critical for all of us. And yes, you should be gardening. Every one of us should be gardening. And it's my firm conviction that we as a denomination would not be in the situation that we're in today in 2017 had we carried this practice forward as we were advised to over 100 years ago. We wouldn't be having evangelistic series out there uh, sharing just the, the prophecy message because people would be knocking on our door wanting to know what we knew because we were so healthy, our food tasted so good, and we were so vibrant. And our ministry would be entirely different today. And if because of the accreditation of Loma Linda we hadn't separated our medical experience from our agriculture, we'd be in a very different situation too. Because you cannot separate agriculture from the medical missionary work. You cannot do it. Even if you know what's right to do and what 
types of foods are going to provide healing qualities, if you don't know anything about the quality of that food, you're missing the mark, folks. The most important aspect of your self-supporting ministry is the farm. Absolutely. Absolutely. None of our health ministries should exist without an agricultural component. It just shouldn't be. But, nevertheless, it is. And by God's grace, that's why we're here. By God's grace, that's why this association has come into existence, is because we finally realize we're remiss. All, all of you today are students in, in which, what is a remedial class, really, even myself, because I shudder to think how different this whole picture of what I'm discussing today, how different that picture would look if we had really followed the plan and if we really developed our own varieties of fruits and vegetables, if we really understood the connection between that and our health. If that, if that hadn't been severed, we'd be a lot farther down the road today. So we're all in a, in, in, in a situation of remedial education here. And, you know, by God's grace, he's going to teach a lot of things to you and to us in a short period of time because it is essential information. It's essential. We're not making it without understanding this. But we can learn that in a short period of time, too. And I, I, I appreciate and I'm grateful for the commitment that all of you made and the sacrifice that all of you have made in, in coming to an event like this. But I don't want you to just get the DVDs and buy the books and then go sit at home. You've got to do this, folks. The blessing is in the doing. All right. Well, back to topic. <laughs> Sermon's over. Um, one of the things that, that is important about soil is, is what we call soil texture. And soil texture refers to the size of the mineral particles in the soil. That's all it refers to. And we break it into three categories, sand, silt, and clay. And this is actually to scale. This diagram is actually to scale of the particle size for a sand particle on the outside here, a silt particle here, and this is a clay particle. Now, all we're talking about now is the particle size. So when someone comes to me and they say, I have a clay soil, is it any good for agriculture? I can't answer that question because I don't know anything about the chemistry of that clay. There are many different types of clay. Some of them have different properties and they all have various different chemistries. But there is uh, something uh, to be said for having clay in your soil because clay is a valuable component to have in your soil. And you'll see why on the next slide. But before I get there, I want to point out that most of our soils, unless you're living on the beach, are not just one of these particle size, sizes. They're, they're a combination of particle sizes. Now, we're here in Florida and walking around out here. It's pretty obvious to me that we have a sandy soil out here. Right? But believe me, if it was just pure sand, none of these trees would be growing. So there are particles of silt and particles of clay even in this sand soil. And the same thing holds true on a clay soil. You know, one of the complaints I get with people that have a heavy soil that's hard to work with. Oh, my soil is all clay. It's just miserable. And uh, clay soil is difficult to work with, but I have only very, very rarely seen truly clay soils. Most people that think they have a clay soil just think they have a clay soil. They don't. Until you walk out through the adobe rice fields of Northern California, you, you don't really know what clay is because it's, 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 
it's, it's a different critter altogether. But anyway, the, 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 the point to make here is that we have a way of determining uh, the texture of our soil and the classification based on that texture uh, using something we call the, uh, uh, the texture triangle here. At this point of the triangle, this would be 100% sand, this is 100% clay, this is 100% silt. And as we move towards the center of this, where we have more of a balance of sand, silt, and clay, we have something called clay loam. That's actually the, the, the most productive type of agricultural soil. Silty clay loams, loam soil, and silt loam, the things that are in this portion of the triangle, are actually the most uh, common and the most productive for our use in agriculture. You can grow on heavier clay soils, you can grow on sandier soils, but it requires a little different strategies of, of, of management of those soils. Those are the, uh, the ones that are, that are most common. Now, the particle size is important. And understanding the particle size gives us an indication of another characteristic of the soil, and that is how much electrical charge there is in the soil. The surface of each of these particles has a slight negative charge, a slight negative electrical charge. And the size of the soil particles determine how much of a charge in total that soil has. And this becomes important because it tells us also uh, uh, how much potential plant nutrient that soil can hold. For example, if I have my water bottle here and I filled it with golf balls to represent uh, sand particles, I might get, what, six, seven golf balls in this, in this jar. And if each of those had a slight negative charge, my cumulative negative charge in this bottle would be seven, right? If I filled it with marbles to represent silt, I'd have maybe 100 marbles in here. So my electrical charge goes from seven up to about 100. And if I filled it with sand to represent the clay particles, I've got thousands of potential sites here, electrical sites, to bond a positively charged ion to. And that's why the size of the soil particle becomes important because on those negative sites we can attach positively charged cations. A positively charged ion is called a cation and these are typically the cations that will be attached to those soil particles if they're in the right proportion. <clears throat> All right? Now just bear with me. Again, think in terms here of principles and concepts. Don't worry about the numbers and the details at this point, okay? Now, this is an, a, a copy of a soil analysis I got from A&L Eastern. This was the very first soil sample we took on our farm back in, in 2009, I think. And what we're focusing on here is just a segment of this soil analysis. And I'm sorry, I know this is real hard for you to see that are in the back here. But we have plant nutrients that are listed across here that are reported in parts per million. We have our pH here. My pH is low. That means I have an acid soil. And my CEC represents the cation exchange capacity. And the cation exchange capacity is the measurement of that negative charge in a given volume of soil. So again, if I have a sandy soil, that cation exchange capacity, its ability to, to tie to a cation, is lower. 
If I have a clay soil, it goes up very, very dramatically. So that number there, my cation exchange capacity, is 11.4. That's a fairly low number. That tells me that I have a silt loam soil, a fairly coarse soil. If you have a clay soil, that number will be much higher. If you have a sandy soil, as I've seen in some samples from the upper um, Michigan Peninsula, for example, that number can be as low as three, two or three, indicating a very sandy soil. <clears throat> this becomes important because we're going to have some of those cations attached to those soil particles. And that is reported down here in what's called the base saturation. Thank you. The base saturation represents how much potassium, magnesium, calcium, sodium, or hydrogen is actually bonded, and this is an electrical bond. When you take a, a magnet and you have a positive and negative uh, you know, pole on your magnet, and you put them together, they stick, right? Well, that's what's happening here, is that these elements are sticking to those, to those soil mineral particles with an electrical bond. And the idea here is to balance this base saturation in a way that will provide that right environment for all of our crops to grow luxuriously and for all of the microbes in the soil to grow luxuriously. So the base saturation refers to the quantity of the cations, these are all cations, absorbed by the soil particles and held by the soil's negative charge. That's what that term means. And the percent base saturation tells us how much of each cation element is presently attached in the soil. So when I look at, at my calcium here at 40, I think it's 48.1, that tells me that for every 100 mineral particles in that soil, 48 of them have calcium attached to them. Okay? You understand? So I think of this as, as the parking places in the parking lot. We've got a parking lot with 100 places in it, and we want so many cars of calcium, we want so many cars of magnesium, and we want so many cars of potassium parked in that parking lot. And our first step in dealing with the soil is to address this and to bring these numbers into a situation that, uh, that gives us desirable levels for optimum biological activity. And these are those levels. The levels that we want to have of the major cations in our soil are greater than 68% calcium. That, can, that number can be 68 or above. We want our magnesium levels to be in a range from 17 to 20%. And we want the potassium to be in a range of 3 to 5%. And this is, is, is based uh, primarily on that, that pioneering, groundbreaking work of, of Dr. William Albrecht. But everywhere and anywhere I have employed this principle, I have seen dramatic results. And again, we're talking about elements here that are also plant nutrients, but I'm not talking about them in their role as a plant nutrient at this time. We're talking about building a, a chemical environment in the soil that is good for everything. Good for the bacteria, good for the fungi, good for the plants, good for the plant roots, and good for you and me when we eat those plants, okay? The cation exchange capacity <clears throat> is the measurement of the soil's ability to hold those cations, okay? So if I have a really fine soil, 
and I want 68% calcium in that soil, it's going to require a lot more calcium than a soil with a low CEC to have those parking places filled. You see, there's more parking places in a, in, in, in a, more overall parking places in a soil that has fine particles. So a fine particle soil, like a, a, a clay soil, is going to require a lot more calcium to, to, to meet that level of 68% than a sandy soil would. And this is why you can't just look at the pH and make an adjustment based on the pH. And this is what a lot of our land-grant universities do. They look at your soil analysis and they say, oh, your pH is 5.5, add a ton of limestone per acre, and that'll bring your pH up to where it needs to be. Uh, sorry, folks, it doesn't, it's not that simple. And, and in looking at soils, uh, uh, what we're, what we're going to do today is we're going to look at them again through that different paradigm of how do we provide a soil that is going to be productive for a long period of time during no buy and no sell. How are we going to de develop the soil in a way that's going to provide us with the nutrition that we need to stay healthy during that period of time too. Now if we looked at soil under the, under the microscope, so to speak, uh, we'd see these various different constituents that are in the soil. We've got our mineral particles. Uh, you know, here we've got maybe a, 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 a quartz and, and clay particle. We've got water that fills the pore space between these particles. Water actually doesn't just occur as a, a drop in the space, but it also coats the surface of all the minerals here, too. We have organic matter, both living and dead stuff here. We've got colonies of microbacteria, and we've got air space in there too. And I want you to keep this in mind as we look at soils because, um, you know, oftentimes we just think of soils as the chemistry that's in them, but we don't really recognize all the things that are going on. And uh, when we're talking about the cation exchange of a soil, what we're talking about are these elements that are actually attached to the negative sites in these soil particles. All right, so in looking at our soil analysis, the first thing that I do, well, let me tell you what the first thing the extension agent's going to do when he looks at your soil analysis for you. The first thing the extension agent's going to do is he's going to look at how much nitrogen is in your soil. And the second thing he's going to look at is how much phosphorus is in your soil. And the third thing he's going to look at is how much potassium is in your soil. And he's going to base his recommendations on those numbers. The first thing that I look at is the CEC and the base saturation because until this is right, it doesn't matter if you have otherwise perfect nutrition in your soil, you're never going to achieve the capacity that that soil has to be productive until you get this base saturation in balance. That range of 3 to 5% potassium, 17 to 20% magnesium, and greater than 68% calcium. And as you can see, when we started with our soils, it was really pretty poor. I had 2.9% potassium, 14.5% magnesium, and I was very low on calcium with 48.1%. Now, my friend Rob Jorgensen has told you in times past that calcium is the key to the chemistry of the soil. And I strongly agreed with him on that because it really is the key element in the soil that allows us to develop a soil in a way that's going to be productive and healthful over a long period of time. Calcium is the key to agriculture, not nitrogen. What was it? Is there a ceiling of calcium? There, yes, there will be, and you'll see that. <clears throat> 
okay? Again, we have a parking lot, right? We've got 100 parking places in our parking lot. And if my calcium gets too high, if I get up to 90% calcium, how am I going to get 17% magnesium in there? I'm not going to be able to do it. Right, so yes, there is, there is a balance here. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.